Hello and welcome. I'm Molly McCann Sanders, and you are listening to my new podcast, Bravado. Today I'm recording on February 24th, which is the one-year anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine, this disastrous conflict that has weakened the United States as a nation and has taken countless lives on both the Russian and Ukrainian side. It's an absolute travesty that we didn't have peace within just a few months. I could have done the entire show, I suppose, on Ukraine, but I despise this conflict so much that I did not and do not plan to do that. I will briefly note a couple of things. One, in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, that would have been, I think it was Thursday the 23rd, but it might have been the 22nd. But in any event, one of those journals, the main sort of lawn read, you know, it starts on the first page and then when you open it up, it's the longest uh, report in the paper, was on Zelensky and how his corruption issues are starting to resurface after a year of this conflict. And I kind of walked through where Zelensky was before the war began and, and in those first early days, and then his huge surge in popularity as they have executed this war. And now it it's discussing how these whispers of corruption and issues that he has in his country are starting to resurface. And I just thought it was very interesting because it's I think it's the first negative article that I have seen about Zelensky in a mainstream paper in the entire last year. And I can tell you right now, when you see that kind of negative, it's not even, it wasn't, it wasn't an aggressive negative, but when you see that slight criticism, a mainstream paper that usually is a cheerleader starting to talk about some unsavory element of Zelensky, I just think, put, put a pin in that. I think that we are going to see a change in attitude with respect to Zelensky. It was, it was very interesting to see. As I say, I, I can't say exactly where it's going. And I'm not entirely sure everything that it means, but I know that it's uh, it's a moment and you should pay attention to it and we will see how it develops in the next few months. I do think in general, the American attitude is changing. So some of us, probably most people listening to this podcast, have been opposed to this war almost from the get-go. But even for people who were initially quite gun-ho, I think as the months have gone by. And we've seen how much American money we're pouring into Ukraine with no accountability and how quickly we are escalating toward a global conflict, a a World War III, a hot war with Russia, a nuclear power. I, I think more and more people have started to feel like maybe this is not what we signed up for after all. <laughs> I, I certainly... I. I know that's the case. I would say I certainly hope that's the case. But in fact, I know that's the case. We certainly see the public opinion is shifting in this area. And so it was even more irritating and obnoxious to see a press conference from Zelensky this morning. He was asked about opinion polls in the United States showing that Americans feel like we're giving too much money to Ukraine, which we are. Uh, Steve Bannon's been doing an excellent job of contrasting the amount of money and attention and support we're giving to Ukraine, a completely corrupt country, in, in a war they shouldn't be involved in where there is absolutely zero U.S. national interest, versus the aid that we are giving to East Palestine, which is essentially nothing. We are going through our own uh, disaster here in the United States. In some sense, the horrible fallout in East Palestine 
sort of typifies America in crisis generally, our, our inflation problems, our economic meltdown, the pain and suffering of the nation is typified in this horrible, horrible crisis that these people in Ohio are going through. Not to say that any of us are suffering like they are, you know, the, the mini Chernobyl, so to speak. But uh, it just, it really drives home the point that our national government and the current administration does not care at all about the pain of the American people right now as we pour billions in money we do not have into Ukraine. So Zelensky was asked about this flagging support amongst Americans, and he had the most arrogant response. He said, if they don't change their opinion, if they don't support Ukraine, they will lose NATO and they will lose their leadership position in the world, which is beyond laughable. The war in Ukraine and our support for the war in Ukraine has done more to undermine our leadership position and our strength and our power internationally than anything else in recent memory. You know, when you look at what Joe Biden did in terms of weaponizing the dollar unsuccessfully against the Russians, the inflation we're suffering because of our insane spending, again, that we cannot afford, we have weakened, we have radically weakened ourselves and the rest of the world, food instability, supply chain issues. This has been catastrophic for the United States, helping helping Ukraine to this extent has been catastrophic to the United States. And NATO, we will lose NATO and therefore lose our leadership position in the world. Would that we could lose NATO. NATO, God bless them all, are a bunch of freeloaders on the American defense dollar. I, I wish we could shut down NATO, which is just the United States committing itself to war when any of these other countries, many of which we really are not aligned with anymore, it commits us to go to war on their behalf, and, and therefore it's the American taxpayer on the line, while all of those other countries can just freeload. And Donald Trump did an excellent job of pointing out how NATO members were not pulling their weight and really holding their feet to the fire. So Zelensky, he is just such a war-mongering globalist con artist. But you all know how I feel about Zelensky. So we're not going to spend any more time on the war in Ukraine or Zelensky on this episode. But just noting we have hit the one year mark. He remains as corrupt as ever. And I hope more and more of the American public wake up and reject this incredibly disastrous war before it pulls us into a nuclear conflict with Russia, which absolutely nobody needs and certainly not on behalf of Ukraine. But the main topic I wanted to talk about today is the Wisconsin primary that just took place on February 21st. That primary, there were other issues on the ballot, but the primary issue in that primary was, of course, the open state Supreme Court seat. Now, as you know, if you read the Molly McCann memo, which I sent out a couple of weeks ago on this topic, the Wisconsin state Supreme Court has been majority conservative for approximately 14 going on 15 years now, which has been absolutely wonderful for a state that is divided. They have a GOP-controlled state legislature, but a Democrat holds the governor's mansion. So the state Supreme Court has been critical in so many different issues for Wisconsin simply as a state. But one of the conservatives on the court determined not to seek re-election in Wisconsin, as in most states, these state judges are elected by the people. So this woman decided not to seek re-election, therefore triggering a primary and general election to fill that slot. So this truly will decide the balance of the court. If we can elect, if we, if Wisconsin, can elect another conservative, 
the conservative majority will hold in the court. But the left has put a bullseye on this race, and they are intent upon flipping it to the left. So in this primary, which took place on February 21st, there were four candidates. There were two liberal candidates and two conservative candidates. It's a nonpartisan race, but people sort of self-profess where they stand. But the two top candidates advance to the general election, and it could have been two conservatives, it could have been two liberals, it could be one liberal, one conservative. And the outcome of the race was that a very pro-abortion liberal judge um, advanced with well over 40% of the vote. I think it was 46 or 47% of the vote. And then the conservative vote was split almost evenly between Justice Dan Kelly and Judge Jennifer Doro. Now, Dan Kelly was a justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. He was appointed to fill a vacancy in 2016, and he served out that four-year term. He ran for re-election to that position, and he lost. I'll get to that in just a second, but he lost in 2020. Now he's running for this position in 2023. Judge Doro was a, or is, a circuit judge in uh, Wisconsin, and she recently came to prominence because she was the judge who presided over the trial of the Waukesha Parade murderer, the man who drove into that Christmas parade and killed so many people. So, of course, that was a very closely watched trial in Wisconsin, and and even nationally. So she gained suddenly a significant amount of prominence within the state and to some extent nationally because of that case. But I spent some time talking to just grassroots conservatives in Wisconsin, lawyers, uh, various political people. And ultimately, the conclusion I came to was that Justice Dan Kelly was the right candidate to support. He has been on the high court. So we've seen his opinions. We know his jurisprudence. We've seen him work through tough constitutional issues. Uh, there were just a lot of unknowns about Judge Doro, who, as I say, is really just a, tri a trial court level judge. There's a huge blank on her constitutional jurisprudence because we just haven't seen her really deal with those kinds of issues. So nothing really against Judge Doro. I would just say that when I looked at the two candidates, there was one who was clearly very solid. One attorney told me that Justice Kelly was like the Scalia of Wisconsin, a very, very bright mind and a great constitutional thinker. And there were just a lot of question marks about Judge Doro, an, an unknown. And I think with a seat of this prominence and this importance, when you have, you know, when you know what you're getting with one candidate and you're not certain about the other, I think uh, prudentially you should go with the known the known quantity. So I was very supportive of Judge Justice, pardon me, Justice Kelly, and very thrilled that he did prevail. If you look at the map from the primary, you'll see that Judge Doro really held um, the counties the, the counties right there in Waukesha, but Justice Kelly took the rest of the conservative counties throughout the state. Now, just a couple of takeaways from this race. Number one. The turnout was pretty abysmal, just generally. Unfortunately, primaries often get very low turnout, but the Democrats were far more motivated than the Republicans. And that's something to both be a little depressed about, but also have some hope. If you add the percentage that the prevailing liberal got, who will now go on to the general, with the other liberal who was running, who only got 7%, it's well over 50% of the vote. So if if it was the same race again with just the two top candidates, obviously the liberal would win over the conservative. But we could have a completely different makeup 
of the vote on April 4th for the general election. And it's just imperative that more Republicans and more conservatives get out the vote in Wisconsin for Justice Dan Kelly to hold this seat and hold the majority in the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. So just keep in mind that the left is very, very motivated on this issue. They're making it all about abortion because, of course, when the United States Supreme Court kicked back the abortion question to the states when it decided Dobbs, The left is using abortion as a tool at the state level, not just to shore up, quote, women's rights, but also to drive change in other important areas. And the left, better than the right, understands the power of state politics and state power to drive the national direction. And when you look at Wisconsin, it's a perfect example. They are pushing, pushing, pushing the abortion issue. It's how they're getting the the radical progressive Gen Zers out. It's how they're getting the women out. They're motivating people on this emotional issue for Americans. And they're using that interest and that energy to get the candidates they need in. But there are a lot of other end goals that they have in mind. And when you look at Wisconsin, of course, they want to bring again to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court the issue of the allegedly gerrymandered uh, legislative districts. They would like to rewrite the districts in Wisconsin so that they can take back control of the state legislature. Right now, the Republicans, as they say, hold it. The Democrats would like to take that power back. Wisconsin is a major, major swing state, and and the left understands that, and they want to take it firmly back into blue control. Now, why does this matter to you if you don't live in Wisconsin? Well, state politics and state policy absolutely affects all of us nationwide and can affect national elections. And the, the biggest and most obvious example of that would be the election we just came through, the presidential election in 2020. If elections go fine, then state Supreme Courts don't really matter. But when they go when they go off the rails a little bit, suddenly the election could ride on the state Supreme Courts. If you look at Wisconsin, that was a swing state. In 2016, Donald Trump won it. That was a huge part of breaking the blue wall that got him into the White House. And in 2020, it was a contested swing state, and it will be a swing state again in 2024. In 2020, after we allegedly lost that state by approximately 20,000 votes, the Trump campaign filed suit in Wisconsin, and uh, they alleged a number of different things. But the campaign went after indefinitely confined votes. There were approximately 200,000 extra indefinitely confined voters in the 2020 election. And that's kind of a loophole in Wisconsin that permits uh, voters to vote absentee without showing voter ID. And that's a whole discussion in and of itself. It was an obvious abuse of the indefinitely confined status. People claimed it who just were afraid of COVID. I suspect a lot of people claimed it who wanted to vote without showing voter ID. Uh, The Trump campaign wanted to throw out indefinitely confined votes that had been registered after a certain date. Unfortunately for the Trump campaign, there's a swing justice on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Usually this justice goes conservative, but sometimes he'll join the liberals to form a liberal majority. And in the case of the Trump election, this particular election case, that swing justice joined the liberals to form a majority and deny the Trump campaign relief. And on the indefinitely confined issue. It's not clear what a conservative majority could have done. But on two or three other very meritorious arguments against some other absentee ballot issues where they hadn't uh, they hadn't properly submitted them or the clerks had 
had fixed them when they didn't have all of the legislative legislatively required elements for an absentee ballot. Uh, the Trump campaign had brought these meritorious arguments, and the Supreme Court said, we're not going to consider them on the basis of latches, i.e. you sat on your hands, you should have brought this earlier. Well, that's a pretty that's a pretty low reason not to address meritorious claims, especially when it's about a national election. And the conservative dissent noted that and essentially said this wouldn't have flown with a conservative majority. So it, it just goes to show how important a state Supreme Court can be when an election is on the line and contested. Now, obviously, we had a lot of different states that were in crisis in 2020, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. So Wisconsin would not have been outcome determinative, but it could be in a future election. So if you know anyone in Wisconsin, if you yourself are in Wisconsin, make sure the April 4th general election is on your calendar and you're telling all of your friends and family and getting everyone to the polls because this affects not just Wisconsin, but the nation as a whole. And a couple of other examples that I put in the Molly McCann memo would be some of the COVID cases that the conservative Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court took up, including uh, when they held that the election in April of 2020 could not be postponed until June or July. That, that was a very good decision. We do not want these leftists using faux emergencies to put off elections where the people have an opportunity to change, you know, the the balance of power in their states. And uh, the other, the really big one, was when the Democrat governor ordered his health secretary to extend the stay-at-home orders, the imprisoning orders. And that was challenged by the conservative-controlled legislature, and they won at the state Supreme Court. And the court threw that out, and Wisconsin was freed freed from the stay-at-home orders. I was in Florida when that came down. It was such an exciting ruling. It provided hope to other states that were struggling to free themselves from the COVID mania. It provided precedent to which other uh, cases could point to, even in other legal jurisdictions. You can point to persuasive precedent in other jurisdictions. And it just signaled to the nation that something was changing. Enough was enough. People were going to go back to being free. And that had a profound effect on the struggle, as I say, to free ourselves from the executive tyranny we had been, been suffering under. So that's about all I'll say about the Wisconsin State Supreme Court race. But the only way to save America is if we ourselves are active once again on the local and state level. Today's legal update is a very, very positive one. Sidney Powell won the lawsuit against her here in Texas. The Texas bar was attempting to discipline her for the election lawsuits that she brought, and they were seeking ultimately to disbar her. So as you may or may not know, in March of 2022, so almost exactly one year ago uh, today, March 1st, uh, the commission sued Sydney, alleging a violation of the disciplinary rules on four suits that Sydney filed challenging the 2020 presidential election. And this is all part of the lawfare that we've discussed on here before. The idea that those lawsuits that Sydney brought uh, with hundreds of pages of documentation and affidavits, that just filing that lawsuit is suddenly somehow a sanctionable offense or you know, a disbarment is is so ludicrous. You know, there are a couple of other complaints against Sydney outstanding still. But here in Texas, as I say, they tried to go after her license. And it was just clearly a naked attempt both to destroy Sydney, but also to send a message 
to all conservative lawyers that you better not challenge elections specifically. And frankly, this will balloon beyond challenging elections to all sorts of political issues. I'm trying to remember someone just brought a case and it's obviously sort of a political it's obviously a political case. They're bringing it. Maybe it has some merit. Maybe it doesn't. But they're bringing it to harass this particular individual. And I remember thinking, well, gosh, if they lose, will they be sanctioned? And maybe maybe someone will go after their bar license. Of course, it was a left, a leftist attacking someone on the conservative right. So it's not it's unlikely. But that's the first thing that popped in my head. Well, if they lose, you know, are they going to be like executed in the Coliseum sort of thing like that? That's the, the sense you get from these attacks on conservative lawyers who brought election challenges. If you brought an election challenge and you lost, they then go after you for sanctions. So uh, Sydney, Sydney uh, submitted a motion for summary judgment and happily on February 22nd, Wednesday, the judge here in Texas granted Sydney's motion. It's complete and final. It's an appealable order. It, the whole case has been thrown out because they simply had brought no evidence of wrongdoing on her part to support their allegation. So it's a wonderful victory for Sydney. We'll have to see if it's appealed. It certainly can be appealed. And these people are just uh, lunatic enough, in my opinion, to, you know, to pursue this obviously baseless lawsuit to continue to harass her, to continue to try to send that message to other conservative lawyers. So we'll see. I hope not. It really is um, an absurd case. And frankly, I would argue that if they did pursue it and did appeal it, that would be a legitimate basis for sanctions. And, you know, there are there are reasonable places where sanctions should be applied. And based on their complete lack of evidence and their complete lack of a case here, were they to appeal I obviously have no part in this litigation, but just as someone sitting on the sidelines, I would want to see a motion for sanctions in that case uh, because it's time to kind of smack back at this abuse from these leftists. Now let me pull from the mailbag. All right, so someone asked, why are people worrying about the 2024 election when we haven't even fixed the fraud from 2020? Well, uh, one reason is because the 2024 election is almost upon us, and so we have to worry about it because it's coming whether we like it or not, and it is essential that we win it. Uh, I, perhaps the underlying question here is, why do you think we can win again in 2024 if we haven't fixed the fraud from 2020? And that is an excellent question, and it's a very scary question. And the answer will come as no surprise to you, I don't know. I don't know if we can win in 2024, having not fixed the 2020 election. I do know that we still have time, but currently we are in February, and a significant number of states, many many of the swing states, are in session right now. And so I would ask you, in whatever state you're in, have you checked in on your state legislature and on your governor and your lieutenant governor and your party leadership, and have you looked into seeing if there are bills that are being proposed to tighten up voter integrity in your state. And if there aren't, why not? And we need to get on that immediately because most of these states go into session in January and they're out by as early as March, April, and as late as May. And then they don't go into session again until next next January, 2024. So the clock is absolutely ticking. And I think on some level, we have to let go of 2020 in the sense of right this minute, stop worrying about convincing your fellow citizens about fraud. Give that up for a little bit and focus on fixing the mechanisms 
the voting mechanisms so that we can prove the fraud by winning in 2024? So th- that, is an, that is an excellent question. How can we win in 2024 if we haven't fixed the fraud problem from 2020? And the answer is, I don't know that we can. And so we better get moving. We've had, we've had two, two and a half years, and we just have not been focused enough. I, I, I do, I've said this before, I'll say it again. As a movement, we did not, we did not keep enough balls in the air. We had a single focus on proving election fraud to the general public after 2020. And at some point, we needed to at least multitask. We have not been very good at multitasking. So again, I really encourage you, in whatever state you're in, check in on your state legislature and see what's up. And and let me know, by the way. I would like to know, starting to track the states a little more closely, trying to get people in touch with other good people, email me at mccann.mol at gmail.com. If you have a great bill that's being presented in your state, let me know about it. And if you are a swing state and you don't have a great bill that's been proposed, let me know uh, so that we can start talking about it and start spreading the word and getting some traction to save our country at the state level. Someone else asks, what do you think of the idea floating around of Michelle Obama as the Democrats' 2024 choice? You know, I've thought for a long time that Michelle Obama, and I think I've said this on another podcast, I've thought for a long time that Michelle Obama has no desire to be president of the United States. She has everything that you achieve. If you're not zealous politically, and I don't think Michelle Obama is zealous politically, she's not like Hillary Clinton. She's not fired by a desire to change the country and mold it to her ideological framework. I mean, she is, Michelle is to a certain extent motivated by that, but it's not her driving fire. I think that Michelle's driving fire is the lifestyle, the, the multiple homes, the lavish foreign vacations, the expensive clothes. You know, she's written, isn't she on her second best-selling book? You know, that's a lot less confrontational. Her, her life now, writing books, giving speeches, being a celebrity, she sort of have peaked already in my mind, and now she's enjoying the fruits of having been the first lady. I don't know that she wants to jump back in and be abused by a Republican nominee and have to go through the whole grueling campaign process and everything that comes with that, the scrutiny, the debates, etc., etc. So I'm just not convinced that Michelle is willing to run, whether, whether the Democrats want her to be the nominee or not. And honestly, I haven't heard much suggesting that she will be the nominee. I still think that Gavin Newsom is is a formidable opponent and one of the most likely contenders for for the Democrats in 2024. We'll see. It's a little early, and I have certainly haven't been tracking the Democrats as closely since we've got so many problems of our own on the right. But obviously, their candidates will start to become clear here pretty soon. Someone says, how soon can we dump this entire administration before we, we literally have no country left? And the answer is January of 2025. I mean, we're going to get rid of this administration when we vote it out and we install a new administration, hopefully in 2025. You know, the the system of government is is running like normal in the United States. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but we have to work harder than the left to win in 2024 and take our country back. Someone else says, I enjoy listening to Judge Napolitano's commentary. Do you? Uh, No. So I don't listen to Judge Napolitano at all, to be honest with you. And my opinion of him is not positive. 
He wrote an op-ed several years ago during the impeachment of Donald Trump, and he supported impeachment of Donald Trump. So I, to each their own, but I personally would not rely on his legal analysis, and I would certainly not be under the false impression that he's part of the America First movement because he is not. All right, I think that's going to wrap up today's podcast. Again, the most important thing that I would ask you to do today is to get in contact with everyone that you know who lives and votes in Wisconsin and impress upon them the the critical nature of this election and encourage them to get out the vote. We're all relying on our friends and relatives in Wisconsin to get out the vote in this critical state Supreme Court election. I am Molly McCann Sanders. Thank you so much for listening. 